we absolutely have to find out why they're hypotensive. Often we're at a board round talking about the patient. Someone will say their BP is a bit low. I will ask them, um, how do we need to worry about this low blood pressure? Have you gone through the four W's? And most of my trainees now will know what the four W's are. So is the patient wakeful you know, with it? So that's mm -hmm. the conscious level. Are they warm peripherally? That's their skin perfusion. Are they weeing? So that's their urine output. And have you checked their wactate? <laughs> I like to think about it in a kind of tiered approach. Yeah. Uh, two tiers. There's three plus three rule. Have you heard of this before? Three plus I've three. Not. No. Yeah, I really like it. You could argue it's an over oversimplification, but I kind of like that initially. Um, so the three causes uh, boil down to volume problems, pump problems, or obstructive causes. So it's volume, pump, obstruction, volume, pump, obstruction. And then the next tier, if you think it's obstructive, there's three main causes of obstruction, which is tension in the thorax, tamponade, and massive PE. Uh, I think that's the hardest thing in critical care medicine, is yeah. uh, assessing fluid, status acutely yeah right. if someone's obviously overloaded that's easy if someone's yeah. obviously hypovolemic that's easy <laughs> but those patients in between who've still got a crap blood pressure and you've given a couple of liters to let's say it's a septic adult yeah um do you go more fluids or do you start the noradrenaline that when when is that decision welcome to the ed gym Welcome back to the podcast, Legends. It's Benny here. Um, the ED Jam podcast has hit over 50,000 downloads um, about three weeks ago. So I just want to say thanks to everyone who's ever listened to an episode, sent it to a friend, um, or you know, listened to it on the way to work or before they shift. Um, I'm really pumped, uh, and I've got plenty more episodes coming up. But I just want to say thank you, first of all, for anyone who's listened to an episode. Now, we're going to crack into the podcast. I've got a pretty big guest. His name's Cliff Reed. Um, and you would have heard him um, probably at conferences. You may have listened to him on other podcasts like the MCRIT podcast or other podcasts around, or even heard some of his talks um, on YouTube. He's awesome. Um, Dr. Cliff Reed, um, I can't wait um, for you guys to listen to this episode. It's about hypotension. You're going to love it. Um, I actually wrote notes while the podcast was on, and I've still got them. Uh, I'm a bit of a nerd, but it was awesome. Uh, I think you're really going to love it. You're really going to love some of the take-home messages that we can apply in our clinical context. Um, and you're really going to love just his approach to the hypotensive patient. So let's crack into the episode. You Welcome to the EDGM podcast. Um, this morning, I'm chatting to um, Dr. Cliff Reed. Um, Cliff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, mate. Thanks, mate. Happy to be here. Stoked. Um, now, I um, just quickly, I heard about you, listened to a, uh, a few, you've got a lot of information out there um but one really good one i heard was about when to stop resuscitation and i listened to that video and 
I automatically thought, you know what, I'm going to send you a message on, um, on LinkedIn and you responded straight away. Uh, and I'm so grateful that we can access clinicians and that we can talk to them. Um, so I'm just so grateful, mate. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, mate. Um, now, we're going to chat about um, hypotension this morning. Just first of all, for everyone listening, who is Cliff Reed? Who are you, mate? And what do you do for work? Um, so I'm just like a nondescript white bloke in his <laughs> early 50s who, um, who goes to work and comes home and tries to spend time with his family. I've got one kid. He's 12. He's awesome. My wife's yeah. amazing. Um, and my job is I'm a doctor. I work in emergency and um, I do some intensive care as well out yeah. in, the, in the west of the state. Um, and half my time is also spent in retrieval medicine, pre-hospital retrieval medicine with New South Wales Ambulance. So I work in that sort of interface where you find sick patients between pre-hospital, in-hospital, mm. um, at the front door of the hospital, both adults and kids. So I'm fascinated by any ways in which we can, you know, improve the chances of patients needing resuscitation in any environment. Mm. I um, read a statement that, or that was written about you. It said, um, Cliff believes those of us are privileged to be in a position of influencing critical care and have a responsibility to enthuse and inspire other healthcare staff to be the best resuscitationists they can be. Um, I read that and I don't know about anyone listening, but I was like, whoa, that's um, a great mantra to sort of live by as a clinician. Yeah, thanks. I think the, the motivating and inspiring other people bit is, is really important to me. And the greatest pleasure I ever get at work, you know, apart from saving a life, which is not every day, mm. uh, um, is seeing trainees perform at a level far higher than I managed to at their stage in my own career. Mm. Um, and I do see that every day. And you know, to be able to contribute to that, to be able to contribute to making the next generation better than the current one, that's, that's awesome. That's what you know, makes a difference, I think. 100%. It's really, uh, yeah. I walked out of work the other day and even just seeing someone do a skill they hadn't done before, it kind of gives you that joy. They were just accessing a portacath, but it, like to see their face light up when they've done a skill, like, oh, I got it. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a great skill to see. Um, now, why hypotension, Cliff? Um, of all the topics to talk about, why hypotension? Um, it, to me, it's one of three big areas of resuscitation that you have, if you have a good grasp of it, you've got 90% of the resource room nailed. Yeah. Um, and why am I talking about three areas? It's because my colleagues and I over the last few years have been inviting people to submit cases that went wrong to us um, via resuscitology, which is a course that we run. And um, the, the three big areas um, that, you know, it's, it's one or more of these things in, in almost every one of these cases which is issues with airway management, issues with hypotension, so shock or, or hemorrhage, um, and the human factors stuff, making stuff happen in resus. Those seem to be the three things that continue to catch individuals and teams out. And if you have a structured and simple approach to all of those areas, I reckon you've nailed most of resus in or out of hospital, ED or ICU, met call on the ward. These mm -hmm. things just keep coming up again and again. So you asked me what I wanted to talk about. I decided to pick one of those three at random because uh -huh. um, there's a lot of airway management stuff out there. Um, so uh, I just thought I'd go with hypotension. 
Allah. I'm happy to touch on all three if you want. Well, I, I, love, I love how you've categorized three of those things because uh, I know the one that I see, oh, you know, I've seen all three of those in the resource space. Uh, and the human factors is always a difficult one, especially with different personalities in emergency. Um, but the hypotension is interesting too, because, um, you know, you've got your four H's and four T's, but it's just interesting when you've got your hypotension and shock, it still catches us out. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to talk about the H's and T's, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lining up my soapboxes here, going to run across them. <laughs> I'm sure we can pick out bits. It'll be awesome. Um <laughs> So as a, as a clinician, um, hypotension, um, what conditions do we commonly see hypotension in? And um, as yourself being a clinician, where have you seen hypotension? You know, you've mentioned shock, but um, what are some things where you, you know, some situations where you see hypertension commonly? Yeah, I guess that, that's a good point to start, actually, is we talk about shock separately from hypotension because they're clearly not the same thing. Shock is one potential consequence of a low blood pressure but it doesn't always happen low blood pressure is often very well tolerated um so i kind of start when presented with a patient with a low blood pressure is do i have to worry about this when do i worry about low blood pressure because mm. it'll happen all the time in the ed there's a patient about to go to the ward and the nurse says oh the patient's blood pressure is 95 systolic yeah. do you want to change the criteria the calling criteria and you think well i don't know let me go see this patient <laughs> um so, uh, and, you know, you might have a patient that's sitting there not looking too hot that yeah. definitely can't send to the ward, or you might have a patient, you know, on their phone, having a snack, looking perfectly happy. Yeah. And so really, you know, what's the point of a blood pressure? It's to perfuse yeah. your organs. So if the blood pressure is problematically low, it's not going to perfuse your organs. So we need to look at our windows to the circulation. Yeah. And the three bedside clinical windows are, are your uh, conscious level, so how alert the patient is, mm -hmm. your skin perfusion, how warm and well perfused they are, um, and their urine output, their kidney perfusion. So if you've been monitoring that, that's good. Um, but of course, there's this concept of occult shock, so the, the, the organ hypoperfusion that's not easy to detect clinically, mm -hmm. and that's often manifest through a raised lactate. So um, I often would have bored around talking about the patient. Someone will say their BP is a bit low. I will ask them, um, how do we need to worry about this low blood pressure? Have you gone through the four W's? And most of my trainees now will know what the four W's are. So is the patient wakeful you know, with it? So that's mm -hmm. their conscious level. Are they warm peripherally? That's their skin perfusion. Are they weeing? So that's their urine output. And have you checked their lactate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm not saying do a lactate in every patient with a low blood pressure, but no. often it is helpful to rule out that that low um, that that occult organ hypoperfusion. If the four doubles four Ws are all okay, then um, we can choose to observe that blood pressure. We might not need to supplement it artificially with a vasopressor or whatever, which often happens without thought. Yes. I love how you said, um, you know, like the the skin, like skin, are they warm? Um, you know, such a, I think some so often we miss that um, temperature and weeing. So often in emergency departments, we, you know, you look on a fluid balance and they may have had, you know, X amount of fluid or, and no one has, you know, documented a, a fluid balance, especially at the moment when we've, we've shifted away from being paper-based paper to being online. 
Um, and, you know, just that, that whole process, I think, has, has caught a few people out for measuring as well. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's a tricky one, particularly with a short um, snapshot um, view of the patient. You know, we need a movie, not a snapshot sometimes. We need to look at how they progress over time, and you don't always have that luxury. Although we do now because patients are in the ED for days. <laughs> I was going to say, at the moment, I've got to be there for 48 hours. <laughs> the luxury of access block. We're so lucky. I know. Well, you end up looking after a ward and an emergency department at the same time because you've got an aged care ward or you've got a, you know, an, an ortho ward or a surgical bowel obstructions and you've also got your ED patient. So it's a, um, it's a mixed bag at the moment, but they're definitely stuck in the ED. Um, yeah. I loved how you raised about just quickly talking about blood pressure and, you know, you know sometimes we can get really fixated on, on a blood pressure number um, as a clinician and we can say, oh, you know, we've got the zones, yellow zone or red zone, and I need to get them to the ward. So just mod- do, do the quick and easy thing and modify a pace criteria. Um, but I liked how you sort of said, I need, well, I need to look at the patient first. Um, I think that's a really good learning point for people out there as well. Yeah. It's easy to fall into that trap uh, of, you know, you want to get things moving and you finally got a bed. The last thing you want to do is say, no, no, keep this patient here. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we we did an interesting little study which is ongoing called the EDICU indirect admissions project okay and we've looked at patients who end up on ICU that were not referred to ICU from the ED mm. so they've gone from ED to the ward yep. there's been a deterioration on the ward and they've ended up on ICU um now clearly if they've gone to the ward they've got a surgical emergency they go to theater and they need some post-operative ICU we're not really interested in those no it's it, we're looking for patients in whom we failed to spot the deterioration or the potential of deterioration uh, so that there are learning points for us at the front door. And um, we broke it down to that sort of airway problems, breathing problems, circulation problems, um, uh, conscious level problems and sort of other. And the biggest contributor to that group of patients is the hypotension patients. So the ones with the saggy BP in the ED, they've had a transient fluid response. You go, oh, that's good. <laughs> the BP came up with fluid. They've had their antibiotics in, they come to respiratory for their pneumonia or geriatrics, whatever. And, um, and then they fall in a bit of a heap because they're only a transient responder. Mm. Um, So finding those patients is a, is a challenge. Mate, how often do we encounter hypotension in the emergency department and pre-hospital care from your experience? Yeah, I guess it depends on where you work and caseload volume. Um, So I can't really give you a, a figure um, but I would say, you know, it's, most services are going to encounter it every day. Yep. Uh, most clinicians are going to encounter it most shifts or every few shifts. So it's something that we need to have a good handle on. Yeah. Do you have a set number as a clinician that you look out for for blood pressure or do you take the patient as a holistic, you know, viewpoint and sort of, you know, obviously gain a clinical history from them and, and determine what would be their adequate blood pressure for them on their, on their presentation? Yeah, that's a great question. So it depends on the clinical context as well as the patient factors. So if we take the example of trauma, yep. um, you know, everyone's kind of taught that at medical school, at least, or nursing school, that below 100 is hypotensive. And for certain scoring systems, you might look below 95 or below 90 even for hypotension. There's a few good studies out that look at uh, adult trauma patients and there's quite kind of a sharp inflection point of mortality once the blood pressure goes below 110 systolic in one study and 105 in one of the others. 
So, you know, if you're waiting for things to drop to 100 or below, you've missed the boat in, in adult trauma patients. Mm -hmm. So if I go out to a motorcyclist who's come off, who's got some chest injury, maybe a fractured femur, mm -hmm. um, and his BP's 110 systolic, you know, and he's a 90 kilo biker, um, I'm very worried about that patient. To me, that is, that is hypotension. Got traumatic injuries, he's in pain. Um, and for BP to be that low, there's, there's probably a problem. And if it's dropping below 110 systolic, I'm thinking about cracking the blood sometimes, okay. uh, pre-hospital. Wow. Depending on the factors. Yeah. So our definitions of hypotension yeah. in, in our minds are definitely colored by very traditional teaching. Um, but yeah, it depends on the disease as well as the patient. And then, um, yeah, as we all know, elderly patients tend to have higher blood pressures. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, you've got your slightly confused old man with a positive urine dipstick and a fever who's sitting there in the, the majors area. He's not even in recess and he's getting a little bit more confused or agitated and you're putting it down to his age because he's 89 um, and his blood pressure is 105 systolic. And he's, you know, there aren't any red flags there. No one's getting agitated because officially he's not hypotensive, but his normal systolic at home might be 170, right? Yeah. He might actually be developing quite serious organ hypoperfusion. And you ask the family and actually, no, he's normally quite with it. He's self-caring at home. This confusion is not dementia. Yeah, he's got a delirium or he's got cerebral hypoperfusion from his, what for him is hypotension. Mm. And then he's the guy that comes back with a lactate of 4.6. And then you realize you're, you're a bit behind things and you've got a case of septic shock here. Uh, interesting about that um in trauma patients too sorry i just thought about that then like because i know in trauma we get so much taught about that permissive hypotension you know what i mean but um in trauma but i sort of go oh wow maybe we don't you know what i mean like i know that's to stop them accentuating but i also think oh gee maybe i need to relook at some literature on that as well you know yeah i mean permissive hypotension makes a lot of sense in certain circumstances and yeah, I'm definitely not saying transfuse everyone with a blood pressure about 110. I, I want to make that clear. Yeah. What I'm saying is if the if the BP's in that range and someone that would normally have a higher blood pressure, start looking for causes yes. and you may end up needing to transfuse if they continue to deteriorate. But permissive hypotension certainly makes sense if you've got um, a plan to deal with the source of, of hemorrhage, if that's the cause yeah. uh, in the short term. Prolonged hypotension clearly is going to have adverse effects. So we struggle with this in the retrieval setting if we're doing a long range uh, trauma case and we've got to get them to Sydney and there's still more than an hour's flight to go yep. um, and we think they're bleeding. <laughs> we've got a tricky balancing act. Oh, we understand and support the principles of permissive hypotension, but allowing organs to be hypotensive um, for more than an hour might not be a great idea. Yeah. And then of course we've got, if they are exsanguinating, we've got limited amounts of products to give them. We're going to run out. So uh, walking that tightrope is a real challenge. Sometimes we get some pretty hairy cases. Mate, that must be tough. And especially confined to a, a helicopter or an ambulance, it's not like you can, you know, run off and get things delivered to you. You're kind of stuck with what you've got. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are lucky that our state does have a system of managing to get products to some pretty remote places. Yeah. So um, the Aeromedical Control Centre may be ahead of the game and anticipate that we're going to need more than we normally carry. Yeah. And they can organize resources like police to bring boxes of blood and FFP and cryoprecipitate to the scene, uh, which we can use in addition to those that we carry. And that, that has definitely saved lives without any 
yeah. doubt um, in a number of cases. Yeah, I've heard con- like out in the country, like, you know, same thing, police have delivered, like, to the local hospital, like, extra units of blood and, you know, the patient had survived. And I was like, wow, police. Yeah, they've been dropped. You know what I mean? It's crazy just to see that, you know, it's a holistic sort of approach to try and we need this. This is important and I need the community to get involved to help. Yeah, that's it. When the whole system works on cases like that, it's phenomenal to see. It shows yeah. just yeah, how you need everybody to save a life sometimes. It's not all about one heroic clinician jumping yeah. out of the sky and saving the day. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Oh no, oh, come on. Yeah, exactly right. No, mate, how is it how has hypotension been managed in the past from your experience as a clinician? Um, literature versus practice. So what how's it changed in the past and what are we doing yeah, to manage hypotension? Obviously, identifying it's important. <laughs> yeah, so I think the biggest issue with how it's managed sometimes is that some clinicians have built this synapse where the recognition of hypotension leads to the administration of metaraminol. And there's no other synapses in between. <laughs> so there you go. Blood pressure is low. We better treat that. And that's good. They want to treat the low blood pressure. Um, but often the patients would benefit from a bit more thinking in between those the two steps of recognition and treatment. We need a diagnosis. Um, and we know why that comes, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of ED people will do some training in the operating theater to get their anesthetics under their belt. Mm. And there's no doubt that if you see a low blood pressure after you've induced someone with a big dose of propofol, metaraminol is the right drug. Mm. Um, you know, it's a vasopressor, a vasoconstrictor. It's going to counteract the iatrogenic vasodilation uh, and fix the number on the chart. Uh, and that works in that setting. But when you've got resuscitation patients, we absolutely have to find out why they're hypotensive. Yeah. Because, um, there, again, there are studies that correlate hypotension to in-hospital mortality in ED patients. Mm. And mortality sharply rises um, with hypotension but it's quite interesting that clearly there's a very high mortality if you leave the ed and you're still hypotensive uh there's there's a massive chance you're going to die in hospital Mm. if you had ed hypotension that's fixed in the ed and you um present hospital you get admitted to hospital um the mortality is higher than if you weren't hypotensive initially Mm. but not as high as if you're still hypotensive but the also, they've shown that even a single episode of pre-hospital hypotension is associated with increased in-hospital mortality. Yeah, I did know that. So, you know, if you're triaging an ED and the paramedics go, oh, yeah, he looked a bit shabby and his blood pressure mm-hmm. was 60, we gave him some fluid, it's come up now, and the BP's fine in the ED, that patient has a, a much higher in-hospital mortality than someone that did not have that episode of hypotension. Mm-hmm. So it's still important for us to try and figure out why he was hypotensive pre-hospital and mm. need a diagnosis in those patients before we admit them. Mm. That's good. I, I like what you've raised there because so often they're not, um, you know, paramedics will bring patients in. Let's just say a good example is just sort of sepsis, for example, or something like that. The patients had an episode of, you know, a blood pressure of 70. They gave him 400 mils of Hartman's. Um, they were tachycardic and febrile. They got given some Panadol. They've come to the triage sort of area and, you know, they're 37 to, their heart rate's down from, you know, they were tachycardic from 130 down to you know, 105. And their blood pressure was is now 120 post of fluids. And they, you know, sometimes the words, oh, they've been fixed. But are they yeah. fixed or are they actually just, you know, 
mask is there a mask on that sort of initial diagnosis or is it becoming harder to find for that moment on assessment yeah it's a great point and um so easy we fall into the trap of not uh you know because the patient might um all that stuff might be noted by triage but the patient might not get seen for another two or three hours realistically by which time the doctor who's hungry and is in a rush and been hassled by everyone else doesn't bother going and reading the ambulance note yeah um, and that can really catch us out we need to know the, the full extent of that patient's journey mm. i really love what cliff was saying here in relation to hypotension we can get a bit lax sometimes uh, and we can really try and fix a number on the screen um, but i think it's really important that we understand that a hypotension we need to know the causes of hypotension um, not just you know try and fix the issue which is the hypotension um, I also love, you know, we're, so often or not when we're in EDs, we're trying to get patients to the ward. Um, patients can be in our EDs for long periods of time. Um, and we can get a little bit like, oh, come on, let's just get them out of the apartment. But it's really important um, that we've addressed why they're hypotensive. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, it also made me realise when we're getting people to review our patients um, that we should really make sure we give them the whole clinical context. And I'm going to use those four Ws. I thought they were really helpful. Um, and hopefully um, we can put them into context and use them in our clinical context as well. It also made me think about clinical handover. You know, there's so much that we need to include in our clinical handovers, but I think we really need to make sure that we include things like, you know, episodes of hypotension. Uh, and it's also made me think about um, when my patients have had episodes of hypotension and then later on down the track that have declared themselves. Uh, and then, you know, two to three hours later, we're in recess with, um, you know, inotropes and art lines. So I think it's really important that when we hand over to um, other clinicians, we tell them about the um, episodes of hypotension. Um, what what are some you know if you're ticking off link like ticking off things trying to find your you know differentials for hypertension, what come into your top sort of four to sort of think oh this could be the cause of hypertension in your experience? Yeah, I've started to use a structured approach over the last few years that I teach as well, mm-hmm. and that this um, this relates to the H's and T's as well. In fact, because yeah. Um, you know, if someone's got hypotension and it's getting worse, causing organ hypoperfusion, as we've said, they get drowsy, they get a decreased urine output, they get poor skin perfusion. Um, but if you let that blood pressure continue to drop, eventually they're so drowsy, they're not responsive. And if it drops further, they're not responsive and you can't actually feel uh, a pulse. And that's called cardiac arrest. And of course, at that phase where they've just become unconscious with no signs of life, no pulse, Clinically, it's called cardiac arrest, but at that point in the deterioration, their heart is still beating. If you ultrasound the heart, the heart's still beating. If you put them on a cardiac monitor, they'll still have an ECG trace, no so-called pulseless electrical activity. Um, And if the heart's beating on echo, that's sometimes called Mm. pseudo-PEA. But to me, that is just bad hypotension, all right? Although clinically we call it cardiac arrest, the heart's beating, the the heart has not arrested. That's really bad hypotension. And we know that we teach the H's and T's as the causes of that cardiac arrest situation. Mm. So you could apply the H's and T's to any patient with hypotension. The only problem I have with that is the H's and T's is a nice comprehensive list of reversible causes of cardiac arrest. But I've really, and you're probably the exception to this because you're an educator, but I rarely meet anyone that can rattle off the H's and T's accurately and quickly under stress at the bedside. And the other thing is that 
it's not a very structured, you know, you start with all the H's and then you do all the T's. Um, but sometimes it's not clinically appropriate. You know, you might have someone who's been run over by a bus and they come into ED and they're now in traumatic cardiac arrest and someone will go, right, everybody, traumatic cardiac arrest, let's go through the H's and T's, hypothermia, hypokalemia. <laughs> and you go, dude, he's been run over by a bus. I promise you, it's not hypothermia. <laughs> it's not, trust me on this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and in trauma, it's going to be continuous with hypovolemia or cardiac tamponade. Yeah, you know, with few exceptions, it's going to be one of those three things. <laughs> so, um, I like to think about it in a kind of tiered approach. Yeah. Uh, two tiers. There's three plus three rule. Have you heard of this before? Three plus I've three. Not. No. Yeah, I really like it. You could argue it's an over oversimplification, but I kind of like that initially. Um, so the three causes uh, boil down to volume problems, pump problems, or obstructive causes. So it's volume, pump, obstruction, volume, pump, obstruction. And then the next tier, if you think it's obstructive, there's three main causes of obstruction, which is tension in the thorax, tamponade, and massive PE. Um, and you think, well, three, including obstruction, plus another three well you, you haven't given me a lot of causes here there's four h's and four t's at least that's eight what you're ripping me off here man where's 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 my hypokalemia here where's my, where's my toxic ingestion <laughs> well you know as you know those things will cause pump failure so they will help you narrow down to a problem of cardiac output a problem of of, of myocardial function mm -hmm. um so you know if you've got a basic history this guy was run over by a bus or this patient took an overdose or whatever and then you look at the patient and then you stick an ultrasound probe on their heart mm. you will nail whether it's a volume issue a pump problem or an obstructive cause of shock yeah. and you'll know within seconds what you need to be doing about it um so you know if we do break down the h's and t's and things if we talk about volume it's not absolute hypovolemia it's an absolute or relative volume loss okay. so if you've got a vasodilatory distributive shock from anaphylaxis phylaxis or sepsis you would count that partly under volume because the initial treatment is going to be some volume while you're getting your vasopressor pump problems could be any cause of of the, the heart not pumping obviously so you know it could be anything from profound hypocalcemia to a beta blocker overdose to a massive STEMI um, and then the obstructive causes well we, we've listed those three um, so yeah, I like the three plus three rule. And often if you've got a, a cardiac arrest or profoundly hypotensive patient, you're empirically giving volume while you're getting the other stuff ready. Mm. So you might think about volume, but you started that treatment anyway. Yeah. Then you get your ultrasound probe, you stick it on the heart. Um, and if that heart's not moving, pump problem. Yeah. <laughs> if there's fluid around the heart, tamponade. Yeah. If there's a massive RV, massive PE. Yeah. In the thorax, um you're, you're going to pick that up clinically usually and from the history but you can use ultrasound obviously to support the diagnosis of pneumothorax as well yeah that's oh like i think what puts people off is it, and why it's not become a habit for everyone to do this is people assume you need great echo skills to do this um, but i've taught medical students in a few hours how to identify these pathologies and then got them to go around the icu and wow. give, give me a structured report on their echo the hardest thing about echo is getting the view but if you've got something killing you right now it's usually going to be visible on the echo yeah so if you if you're arresting from massive pe 
you're going to have a big RV. That's if right. you're resting from tamponade, you're going to be able to see the fluid around the heart. And people will find me, you know, small print exceptions to what I'm saying. That's fine. But I'm talking about the vast majority of patients trying to die in front of you. Um, this approach will get the answer really quickly. Mm. I love it. It's awesome. We had a great case of a man who uh, was out cycling. This was actually on the TV news. So you know, there's no kind of breach of confidentiality here. Um, but he was out cycling in the northern beaches, got sudden onset of chest pain, uh, felt terrible. The ambulance was called. They put a bat call into our ED to say, a uh, 60 year old male with chest pain, blood pressure 60, looks bad on the way to you 10 minutes. Mm. Um, and my colleague, Brian Burns, was waiting at the front door with the Echo Pro uh, and the team assembled because we didn't have a diagnosis, but we knew that this was nasty and this guy was going to arrest very soon. Mm. Um, and he had pericardial tamponade hey. on his Echo with a sudden onset of chest pain in this otherwise previously fit guy. Um, this was almost certainly going to be type A aortic dissection with tamponade. Uh, there's very few other ways, unless you're stabbed, how you can suddenly get cardiac tamponade when you're out fit cycling just before. Um, and there happened to be a cardiothoracic surgeon in the hospital that Saturday morning who came down. They, uh, the guy arrested, got Nigel, um, didn't get CPR because that's not going to help in tamponade, got a pericardiocentesis. Um, and then this cardiac surgeon did a subpericardial window um, just to alleviate it. We didn't get full response to the pericardiocentesis. Mm. Then she took him up to theatre. They put him on bypass. They repaired his aorta, and he went home neurologically intact. Wow! There's cases like that that make us fervent advocates of oh. ultrasound at the bedside in your hypotensive patient. I'm mm. guaranteed no one would have made a reliable diagnosis clinically. They might have suspected it from the history. They might have seen the distended neck veins, muffled heart sounds. Yeah, that's that's a joke, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and by the time they would have, if they thought of the diagnosis, by the time they'd requested the CTA autogram, that guy would have arrested. This is going to say, no, no time for scan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then what would have been done, he'd have got CPR, boluses of adrenaline, things yeah. that do not help in that pathology, and yeah. he would have died. You want to go his family. Um, mm. So, yeah, I just can't emphasize this enough. You need ultrasound at the bedside with your deteriorating hypotensive patient. That's cr that's crazy. Like, my, one of my questions was, does ultrasound play a role in the management and assessment? Well, obviously it does. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a great case. We, Tamp, um, I got caught out, but well, we had a lady that had presented with um they were sort of saying stroke so she was unable to sort of feel her lower legs hypotensive i couldn't get any pulses in her lower legs like when i tried to assess her uh and in the end she dissected a type a dissection um and yeah it was just crazy just sort of like they were thinking it's a stroke you know then she went around yeah. and I'm like, i've got no i've got no pulses in my lower legs here and she yeah had dissected pretty high up um, and then obviously it blown off, sort of clot down to one of the legs. It was one, so one leg had a pulse, one leg didn't. So one leg, but um, it was just sort of interesting how um, they they put an ultrasound probe. I'm like, this doesn't look right. <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty early on in the piece. Um, yeah, and that's uh, cases like that generate these shortcuts, these these heuristics. Like, so she's hypotension plus neurological symptoms. Yeah. Um, yeah, hypertension plus focal neurology she's got. So it's the same as if you've got chest pain plus focal neurology. 
or chest pain plus uh you know all these sort of heuristics we do to to suspect aortic dissection because it's a sneaky diagnosis that often evades us for the until it's too late yeah was there ever a thought of that case being like a a big STEMI causing a tamponade or like a a STEMI that had caused some sort of cardiogenic shock that would have caused it or it was thought straight away that it was a temp it was um a dissection yeah so it would be exceptionally unlikely to get a tamponade from an acute STEMI. I mean, you can get obviously ventricular rupture that can cause a mm-hmm. tamponade uh, and that you're right, that's possible. Um, but the aortic dissection seemed far more likely in this guy with this sudden yeah. severe pain and then loss of blood pressure like that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't, you know, sometimes you can see the dissection on transthoracic echo anyway, and it may well be Brian, Brian saw a dilated aortic root or a dissection flap. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember the exact details. But yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the resource room management though, for that guy was the same. It was identify the tamponade, decompress the tamponade, then fix the underlying problem. Yeah. They're awesome to watch the pericardial synthesis drains. Like we had, we had a guy with one put in that saved his life. Like it was, um, yeah, crazy. I did an episode with someone on a podcast about it, just making the call. She's, she called it when to pull the trigger, uh, and basically when to make the decision to put the drain in. And she's like, I know how to do it. I've done it before. Let's go. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, Courtney Peros, one of the emergency consultants, was great. But I was there with her and she goes, all right, um, ready to go. Drain out. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Okay. She goes, I've done one of these before. Let's go. I'm just, yeah, it was amazing. Making those decisions in emergencies is, is one of the hard things, I think. There was a patient um, that one of my retrieval registrars went to. This was, a, this was probably more than 10 years ago now. He's an emergency physician somewhere uh, these days, but he um, he went out to retrieve a guy in his twenties with a diagnosis of pneumonia and septic shock, mm. who had deteriorating hemodynamics and was on escalating doses of quad strength adrenaline and noradrenaline. Um, and he calls me in the middle of the night. I'm the retrieval consultant on call because I've got this guy. Every try time we tried to move him onto our retrieval stretcher to, to bring him to Sydney, he would lose his output. We had to put him back, give him more adrenaline and so on. Uh, I went, okay, that sounds tricky. And he goes, so I did an ultrasound of his heart and I went, okay, what does it show? And he goes, well, I haven't really done any ultrasound training, (laughs) Um, but I've taken some, some pictures and I've sent them to you on your phone. Can you have a look now? I went, sure. I had a look and I went, oh my God. And he goes, that's tamponade, isn't it? And I said, yes, (laughs) good. I'm going to drain it. And I went, good. Call me back. And he (laughs) He drained it and he called me again. He goes, do you know what? This guy's off his inotropes now. We're, we're good to go. Oh. Um, and he had some kind, he did have pneumonia, but he had some kind of infective cause of pericardial effusion that had built up until it, it caused tamponade. Wow. Um, yeah. And there's another example of ultrasound saving lives in the hands of someone that hadn't trained in ultrasound back, yeah. back in the day. So now, of course, following that case, we made sure all retrieval registrars um, along with their critical care paramedics go through an ultrasound training program before they start working it's, with us. It's so great. It's a good, it's a good, um, it's a great tool and used and it's used well. When, if you have had a patient in the ED, um, I guess in most emergency departments, if patients are hypotensive, they do get given some amounts of fluids. Um, it, not always, but majority of the time, when does Cliff think it's too much fluids and how do you assess for fluid? responsiveness in your patients if you yeah, think it's you know um, <laughs> a nice quick quick simple question quick answer yeah. 
Um, I, I think that's the hardest thing in critical care medicine is yeah. uh, assessing fluid status acutely. Yeah. Right. If someone's obviously overloaded, that's easy. If someone's yeah. obviously hypovolemic, that's easy. <laughs> those patients in between who've still got a crap blood pressure and you've yeah. given a couple of liters to, let's say it's a septic adult. Yeah. Um, do you go more fluids or do you start the noradrenaline? That, when, when is that decision? Right. Yeah. The only thing we can be sure of is that whatever decision the emergency physician makes, yeah. the intensivist will tell them it was the wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you have to have to know. I'm noting that. That's so true. <laughs> but um, that's kind of semi-jokingly. But because it's just hard and everyone's got an individual approach, and yeah. the reason it's hard is because we talk about fluid responsiveness and we can't really agree what that means. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're septic, you've got a low blood pressure and I give you fluids and your blood pressure comes up, you're – you're fluid responsive, right? And in some literature, your cardiac output was increased by 10% or 15% or something. It doesn't really matter, okay? Yeah. Um, so you can define fluid responsiveness, but there's no agreement on how long that has to endure before your blood pressure drops again. Yeah. So if I give you your 500 mils of Hartman's, your blood pressure comes up. Yeah, you're a fluid responder. But if I go back and have a look at you in 20 minutes, that blood pressure is low again. Yeah. So it was a transient fluid response because you've got leaky capillaries and... Um, there's various reasons why giving more fluid in those patients might not be the best thing. Mm. So your, your loss of vasomotor tone, your vasodilation, in some cases can be made worse by more fluids. Mm. It doesn't just not fix the problem. It can actually worsen the problem. Yeah. Um, and we know that crystalloids can sometimes, you know, further impair the function of the endothelial glycocalyx, this thing that, you know, preserves the integrity um, of your blood vessels to stop them leaking. Um, so you can make the vasodilation and the leakiness worse by giving more crystalloids. Sometimes you're in this sort of vicious circle and we can be sucked into the trap of, well, they responded to fluid before, let's give them a bit more. It might, you know, this might be a more sustained response this time. Yeah. And if you then layer on additional challenges of not enough ICU beds and you want to get that patient out of there because you don't want to do a central line because there's no space in recess or there might, you know, you might have had a bad interaction with the ICU team earlier and you just don't feel like calling them again. There's all these human factors yeah. and logistic issues and environmental uh, considerations um, that can sway us at least subconsciously and make us think, I'll just try a bit more fluid yeah and then you're several liters down the line and you've not done this patient any favors who was telling you all along can i have some noradrenaline please mm. um so it, it's such a hard question to answer and um, because of that in most adults i'll stop at two liters yeah okay yeah if it's an old patient with congestive heart failure who's got a bit of peripheral edema already and their sats are not too clever to start with i might stop at a liter a liter and a half yeah, yeah. Um, so, and my practice has changed over the years yeah. following the early, early goal directed therapy papers, you know, rivers is initial thing. We, uh, initial study, we all thought fluids were amazing. Yeah. We we're pouring them into the patients like there was no tomorrow. Um, and we've become much more cautious and much more restrictive in our strategies now. Agreed. Yeah. There are some ongoing big randomized controlled trials, um, that might support early NORAD less fluid. Yep. The evidence is pointing in that direction now. 
but there's not a definite RCT I can point to you, uh, point you towards now that says I'll definitely stop at this number of fluids and give NORAD. Um, yeah, the um, I think it's like we had a we switched across to, you know, the fluids going online, and I remember a girl just getting caught in between and end up being a, a young girl who had um, a Titus media and she had meningitis, like a um, a strep A. Um, it was super interesting because in the end they just kept writing in the notes that she looked clinically well, but she was remained hypotensive. Um, long story short, she got a lot of fluids uh, and in the end got pneumonia overload on top of her already <laughs> meningitis and a Titus media with a um, ruptured tympanic membrane. But it was really interesting when I was reviewing it back. Um, I looked at the albumin level and it was really, really low. And I was sort of interested to, would you ever give any other products other than fluids? Um, I know it's other crystalloids yeah. yeah so yeah the role of albumin in recess um is an interesting discussion point again it's there's not strong evidence in any patient group outside those with liver cirrhosis yeah that's all i could say only liver patients that you'd ever give it for and i'm like oh wow i just was interested yeah Sorry, it, was... there's clearly a physiological rationale for giving someone high concentration albumin if they are uh, hyperalbuminemic yeah. but need volume and have leaky capillaries um, yeah. from sepsis it would make sense to give them an albumin bolus but I, I definitely veer towards 20% rather than the 4% stuff yeah yeah um, and we've done that in our resus and yeah in some patients yeah uh, we never start with it but yeah if we, if we feel like yeah they do need a bit more fluid they're definitely dry the album is very low um, let's try 20% albumin okay. We yeah. have done it. It's it's unusual. Yeah, so so quite, yeah. There's a fair bit of thinking's gone into it, yeah. but it, it definitely should never be the albumin's low. Let's give albumin. No, no. The albumin just drops anyway as part of as part of critical care pathophysiology, just, and giving yeah. more albumin isn't necessarily going to have a sustained rise in albumin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. For that. I just sort of thought about it, it was in my head. I was like, oh, I looked at it. I thought, no, you wouldn't. But I just sort of feel like. Is there anything else? I guess the question is, um, in a lot of EDs I see, and you've mentioned before, you know, patients have these, um, you know, persistent hypotension. They get the quick fix is, you know, metaraminol peripherally through a, a cannula due to um, access block to get a central line or even busy clinicians that don't have time to put a central line in. Um, what are your thoughts on your patients that are hypotensive? Do you just really try to push to get that central line in? Or are no. you start the NORAD peripherally or your other inotropes peripherally? Yeah, so we would start peripheral noradrenaline um, yep. for a number of reasons. One is, you know, from the moment you decide they need noradrenaline, if you only put it through a central line, then realistically it's an hour before they get their noradrenaline, isn't it? Yeah, um, yep, so definitely. It's an hour, hour of hemodynamic resuscitation they've missed. Uh, the other thing is just the evidence base now is so in favour of the safety of peripheral noradrenaline yeah over metaraminol um, pardon over metaraminol there's, there's there's very little data on metaraminol so the assumption is if you extra phase eight metaraminol mm. that's that's better for you than if you extra phase eight noradrenaline okay. i can't find any data on that at all interesting I okay extra phase eighting metaraminol is probably going to be pretty similar um but the the important thing is if you extra phase eight noradrenaline usually in the concentrations that we use disasters don't ensue yeah and there's a number of big studies now um that show that that very low rate of extravasation 
mm. and a very low rate of harm in those patients that do extra phase eight. And if you're in a resus room setting where your resus nurses are keeping an eye on that limb and documenting OBS 100%. for just a few hours, it's an extremely safe thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> All you need to do is make sure you have a hospital policy that that means you're not breaking any rules by doing it. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you just have to fight every time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, yeah, we, we've got a peripheral norea policy that's agreed between ED, ICU and pharmacy. Yep. Um, and that works. People breach the policy. Then we look at that case, but yeah, um, it, it's what you need to do. So I used to be quite adamantly opposed to metaraminol because if you look all the way around the world and every sepsis guideline out there, you won't see the word metaraminol. Mm. Yeah. Everyone giving it for sepsis peripherally because they're yeah. scared of peripheral noradrenaline. Mm. I'm less, I get less agitated these days because one of the mechanisms of action of metaraminol is release of noradrenaline from presynaptic vesicles. So uh, metaraminol results in, a, in the patient getting some noradrenaline anyway, indirectly. So, so you're like 30% happy as opposed to 80%. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, just yeah because at, at a previous hospital i worked it was always um peripheral nor i don't know the one i'm at now i just sort of see a lot of metaraminol from the intensive care unit just interesting um but it depends on the clinician i do see i think in my experience in the last sort of 10 or 12 years i've definitely seen early the early administration of inotropes um before heaps of fluids which i'm happier with as a clinician um but I generally see the trajectory of the patient um, head to the intensive care unit, but I hope hopefully those discharge times are, you know, and the length of stay is less and the mortality and morbidity is less too. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a believer um, that early vasopressors or early vasoactive drugs, I should say, like noradrenaline, probably reduce the total duration of those drugs, certainly in subgroups of patients. Hmm. Yeah, the Eurosepsis ones often do very well and might only need a few hours of NORAD. Um, but if you've tried to hold off and give them leads and leads of fluid, as you say, their ICU stay ends up being longer, mm. uh, less patient-centered. Um, in, I only got a couple of questions to go, Cliff. Like in, um, with inotropes, where do you normally start? Do you start one or two mils an hour of um, peripheral NORAD? That sort of... Yeah, in that ballpark and then just titrate up quickly if they need it. But um, uh, yeah, so I guess the overall approach to hypotension for me would be, uh, do I worry about this? Do they have the four W's? Yep. Uh, yeah, there's evidence of organ hypoperfusion. Right, let's put the probe on early. Sure, start with the fluid bolus, but let's put the probe on early and get an ultrasound of the heart and see if it's volume pump or obstruction. Mm -hmm. And then get a plan for further investigation and treatment of that underlying cause. If they need vasoactive drugs because they're not fluid responsive, then noradrenaline would be first line for most conditions and i'd start that peripherally pending central lines and art lines mm -hmm. um and then sometimes you'll get patients who let's take a septic shock patient again who are refractory to catecholamines they're refractory to the noradrenaline and you're thinking well do i start adrenaline now or mm. do i start vasopressin or do they need a steroid um those ones can be a challenge, particularly if they're deteriorating quickly in front of you in the ED. Mm. Um, so I have a I have an acronym for that. <laughs> I love it. You've got acronyms for everything, mate. I'm I do. down on the left hand side of the screen just so I can keep up. <laughs> I love it. Um, 
So my, my acronym for refractory hypotension is alpaca. Love um, it. Certain places in the UK have llama farms and alpaca mm -hmm. farms, and they market the, their visits to the farm as a cure for your hypertension. Is your blood pressure too high? Come and pet a llama and you'll feel better. Um, so in my mind, alpacas are linked with blood pressure. And, um, so if, I, if we've got escalating noradrenaline going in and this patient's going off, yeah, that's a cognitive stop point for me where I'll use this forcing strategy. All right, let's go through alpaca. And the first A is, is it actually a low blood pressure, right? Is there a sampling error? Um, has this patient got asymmetric vasculature? Is there a subclavian stenosis, meaning any blood pressure done in their right arm is, is artificially low? So let's check it on the other arm. Have we got an art line in or um, do we need to do a non-invasive on the other side? So is this a real reading? Mm. Uh, and as you know, if they've got arterial lines in, sometimes there might be a discrepancy between the height of the patient and the height of the transducer. Um, the transducer might be really high, but you've, you've dropped the patient low down to put yeah. an IDC in or something, and therefore it's, it's misreading the, uh, the blood pressure. So the first thing is, do I, do I believe it? Is this real? Mm -hmm. the, the L is then the lines. Are they working? Right. So this patient's resistant to noradrenaline. Are they getting noradrenaline? Have we checked? Who drew this up? Is it labeled properly? Is there a kink in the line? Is the syringe driver run out of battery because it's not plugged into the wall? Um, mm. Is there an occlusion upstream in the line? So are they getting the noradrenaline? So once I'm sure that, that, yes, it is a real blood pressure and the noradrenaline is going in, I now go through PACA. And the first P, of course, is POCUS, point of care ultrasound. You need to see if you've got the diagnosis right. Um, because again we have other factors that nudge our behavior in certain directions so if you're using the first net system in some hospital eds in new south wales if you've done a blood gas and the lactate's elevated you get this little annoying window that keeps coming up this box that says lactate is a marker of sepsis please make sure you've considered sepsis all right and there are some clinicians who are busy if they read that we go oh yeah it's sepsis and then you get the fluids and the antibiotics and yeah. they don't get their diagnosis of uh, massive GI bleed mm. or cardiac tamponade or massive pulmonary embolism mm. or thiamine deficiency. So those are four cases that I presented at grand mount rounds <laughs> of oh. patients that were treated for sepsis um, who had those other diagnoses causing their raised lactates. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we've got the sepsis kills mantra all those posters everywhere that my title of that grand rounds presentation was sepsis kills but it doesn't kill patients who don't have sepsis we've got to introduce these these steps where we there's some conscious thought going into our yeah. management um so yeah we're going through alpaca it's actually low blood pressure the lines are okay I'm doing my POCUS to rule out obstructive causes of shock or pump failure. Um, no, I think this is still a distributive shock or you know, vasodilatory shock or combination from sepsis. What do I do now? Uh, well, the next A is adrenal insufficiency relative or absolute. But you know, we know this is a feature of septic shock sometimes, and that's why in the guidelines we would give some hydrocortisone mm -hmm. if they're not responding to reasonable doses of noradrenaline. So we'll pop the hydrocortisone in at that point. And then the C is my favorite one. Love this it. stands for calcium. This is ionized calcium. 
So it has to be the calcium on a blood gas, the ionized, the serum calcium on your other labs is not going to be helpful here. Mm-hmm. Um, and your, your heart, your myocardium needs ionized calcium to be able to pump and your blood vessels need ionized calcium to be able to constrict. So with low ionized calcium, you get pump failure and you get vasodilation. There we go. And, um, there's actually a case, um, not, not locally, um, but I'm aware of, of a patient with catecholamine refractory shock uh, with profound myocardial depression who was referred for ECMO retrieval. Mm. And when the ECMO team got to him, uh, they were preparing to cannulate because his heart just was hardly doing anything. He was on quad strength, everything, and not <laughs> responding. And then one of that team picks up the blood gas and go, hey, boys, this is interesting. Has anyone seen an ionized calcium this low before? And they went, what? Jeez. Um, and so they gave this guy uh, some intravenous calcium gluconate, a few yeah. doses, and his blood pressure came up. His inotropes were massively reduced, and he did not require ECMO. That was yeah. a close. And that was all for want of a bit of calcium. Um, no. So your ionized calcium will drop anyway in critical illness. Things like blood transfusion can drop yeah. it further. But um, if you miss that one on the gas, you know, everyone looks at the lactate. No, yeah. If you miss a low ionized calcium, uh, you, there's a chance that you could fail to treat an easily correctable cause or contributor to the hypotension. Mm. Save that patient a whole world of other interventions. It's now the first thing I look at on a blood gas in a yeah. shop or, or bleeding patient. I look at that ionized calcium. It's a, a cheap, easy drug through a peripheral vein can save their life. Yeah, I saw it pop up, um, you know, even hypercalcemia when you came to that, you know, diamond of death. Now they changed it to as opposed to the, you know, the triangle of death. But they had hypercalcemia. Um, and I was interested. I was like, oh, yeah, such an important um, electric, you know, such an important drug. Yeah, mm. yeah. Again, something that we've ignored for years, but it's yeah. sitting there staring us in the face on the gas. <laughs> and then the final A in my alpaca yep. acronym is anaphylaxis. Yeah. So let's just revisit the story here. Let's re-examine the patient. Could there be some kind of ongoing exposure to an allergen that unless we remove that, no amount of adrenaline is going to fix them? Yeah. My favorite one was a patient who had anaphylaxis in theater. They initially thought it was uh, the rocuronium, then they thought it was the antibiotics. They sent him to ICU. He was uh, refractory to all our treatments. Mm. Um, and it did look like anaphylaxis. There was no other reason why this elective surgery patients should suddenly go off in theater. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of pieced it together and he'd gone off shortly after they put the central line in. The central line was impregnated with chlorhexidine. Nice. So pulled out the central line on this guy who's getting all this noradrenaline and adrenaline and his BP came up and he, it, it fixed him. <laughs> um, he was allergic to chlorhexidine and uh, yeah, the whole team had to work that one out together. But that's why I thought, right, I never want to miss this again. I'm yeah. going to build my acronyms. And your alpaca. I <laughs> thought you were going to add, you're going to add something there. Watch out for something spitting at you or something. I was trying to work out what the other A was. <laughs> skinning anaphylaxis i don't know or something weird i was like yeah crazy um that imagine going through that as a team you know working backwards going you know what have we put in the patient what has gone you know yeah like that's such a it's like a detective work almost hey yeah it's a great case those are ones you remember for years yeah and, and influences your practice afterwards
Trent Dellenberg, a thing of the past. I know you put up a little post on your um on your. Uh, I love I love people that I think with you, Cliff. And I've only met, obviously, spoken to you, but I I love how you um caption things that are quite catchy. You know, especially even that sepsis thing you did there. You know, people have these things that get put out there um, in the clinical world. They, and I, I think all the medical things, they tend to be like sexy algorithms or things that catch you, you know. Um, but I love how you sort of put things out there that kind of make make us think as a clinician um, and you back it up with evidence. And I always find that's awesome, mate. So, thank um, you. yeah, it sort of makes me, um, it's good. That's, that's what I like today. Yeah. So Trent Ellenberg. Yeah. Thoughts on it. Doesn't make a lot of sense. No. <laughs> yeah, the rationale obviously you tilt them head down then blood will go from the legs to the heart and they'll get a kind of uh auto fluid bolus uh, that's true raising the legs yes as a first aid measure in hypotension yeah. if you're out in the bush someone's got anaphylaxis you know, lift the legs up um get their blood pressure up that's all good um but why head down right yeah. you can lift the legs up without putting the head down <laughs> Uh, we, we've evolved as upright walking apes. Uh, <laughs> everything physiologically, from our oxygenation and our ventilation, our cardiovascular system, our cerebral perfusion, and particularly cerebral venous drainage, is all based on us being upright. And going head down is just is not nice when you're normal. When you're sick or critically ill, being tilted head down just doesn't help anything. Um, so yeah, raise the legs. That's fine, but that. Yeah, having the bed flat and Trent Dellenberg with the patient head down. Like when I walk around, if I see that, uh, yeah, I'll have to do something about it. The yeah. <laughs> little uh, um, teachable moment, definitely for us <laughs> when we do that. <laughs> um, just and the other thing was, you know, how you're mentioning about like um the fluids, and you sort of raise a few things there. Do you ever put a probe on to look to see if they are like? Would you ever? I remember reading some stuff. I think. Professor Meyerberg had mentioned like flat IVC and those sort of things. Um, I know it's a little bit random thought, but I was like, do you? Yeah, I will. I will look at the IVC as part of my cardiac assessment. And um, it's one of the things if it's very thin and collapsing, then they are, the evidence suggests they will be volume responsive, which means if you give volume, their cardiac output will go up, but that might only be temporarily. Yeah. So it, Essentially, IVC correlates with CVP. It gives you a rough CVP you, measurement. Do you use but it won't CVP? tell you the cause of the high or low CVP. Mm. Do you use it in your ED, CVP? No, never. Cool. Thought so. I was just checking. <laughs> I'm like, we don't use it, but I know some places do. So I'm like, oh, I'm just interested. Yeah, well, is there anything else you want to... I've got like time. Is there anything else you wanted to add that you had there that you thought is so important that, yeah, you know? I reckon one thing, which yeah. is related to hypotension, that catches even experienced people out when they're busy yeah. uh, for the ED, and that is scalp lacerations. Um, scalp lacerations? So, you know, you'll get a nurse say to a resident, oh, Mrs. Bloggs's uh, BP's a bit saggy. Do you want to give her some some fluid? And they yeah. go, okay, and they write some fluid out. And I go, sorry, who's Mrs. Bloggs? Oh, that's the lady waiting for a head CT. And you look at Mrs. Bloggs, and she's fallen over. She's probably on an anticoagulant or, or aspirin. And she's got a big scalp lac and the ambulance crew have done a great job at putting one of those big turban bandages on. Um, and so she's not bleeding on the floor. Yeah. She's bleeding into the bandage. Yes. And it's really busy. She's a cat three. Someone yeah. trying to do the right thing has read the triage note who's got oh, on a pixel band scalp lac. She'll need a CT. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so they've requested the CT. The clock has stopped. There's no rush to see this lady. She can be seen when her CT is done. Yeah. And she's quietly bleeding to death into the bandage. Mm. Um, so I'm continually reminding the staff it's A, B, C, D. It's C before D. Yep, she mm. might need a head CT. But at the moment, she needs hemorrhage control. Yeah. So I try and get these uh, as early as possible. Sometimes when they're waiting for a bed in the ambulance triage area, if they've got a big bandage on, right, let's just have a look, see what's under there, throw a staple in or yeah. suture it up or something. Um, people will definitely bleed to death from scalp lacerations. Yeah. And you can lose liters into a bandage without it being evident. Yeah. So can I summarize? Yeah, summarize, please. Give me up. <laughs> so, um, I reckon you can nail 90% of resus if you've got systems for airway management, systems for shock and hemorrhage control, and you work on your human factors, teamwork, leadership. Um, and as far as the hypotension shock slash hemorrhage control, the key skills really are identifying those patients in whom hypotension is a worry and, and whom you can tolerate it. You can tolerate it if your four W's are okay, you know, warm, wakeful, wean, and a normal whack tape. If you need to be treating it, then you need to be diagnosing the cause. And I don't think you can do that rapidly and effectively without cardiac ultrasound. But you can literally learn the basics of that in a few hours. Um, the point is to make it happen. Fluids are great, but there's probably a maximum amount beyond which they, they can cause harm. And no one knows what that amount is. It's going to depend on the patient. So be prepared if it's a septic case to start noradrenaline early and peripherally and try and get a local guideline for that so you don't have to have a fight every time. <laughs> if you haven't got vascular access, the easy IO is amazing and don't be afraid to put one of those in in a deteriorating patient. Um, and then in your patient who is failing to respond to your initial measures, particularly if they're not responding to your vasoactive drugs, adrenaline, noradrenaline, I find the ALPACA acronym uh, a useful way of thinking of other causes of why someone might be uh, resistant to your initial therapy. Um, and uh, take it seriously, like learn to love hypotension, jump on those cases. If you're a red or a resident um, and you're going to pick up the next patient and someone's hypotensive, um, you know, see if you can prioritize them. Try and Try and get to see as many of these patients as you can. Mm. That's it. That's great, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. Enjoyed the chat. Nice to meet you, finally. I guess what was really cool was just Cliff's response to my message, you know. He could have easily not written back, you know, never responded. Um, but he wrote back straight away and he was keen. And I think that's really awesome and shows the calibre of people out there in emergency. Um, that they're really keen to share their knowledge. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to, you know, share the knowledge with them and learn from them as well. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but this is just really showing me just how amazing emergency is, um, how amazing, you know, critical care is, um, that you've got really awesome clinicians that are willing to respond back, um, and that they're never too cool to have a conversation. And I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, I don't know, made me excited, um, and just really shows me that there's people out there, um, that are knowledgeable, uh, and that are cool. Um, I don't know, that's just my, my take. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love that episode. There were so many things that Cliff included, um, and I think we can really take them on board. Um, whether you're in a hospital, whether you're working in an ambulance, whether you're working in an intensive care unit, or whether you're a student, there's something for everyone on this episode. I also loved just um, how Cliff tries to use you know acronyms or mnemonics to make them easier for people to learn. Uh, and also I liked how um, 
you know, just even being able to contact Cliff, um, you know, he's on so many podcasts and on so many platforms, but um, having, um, I guess, the kindness to come on this episode and chat, um, I was really grateful. Uh, and if you guys um, want to find Cliff Reed, you can Google him, he's everywhere. Um, he's amazing, and I just want to say thanks um, for the opportunity to be able to interview him as well. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Darabal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging.